Welcome to Sounds Out of Time. I'm your host, Matt Kohut. I clearly remember the first time I heard Anonymous 4 in the early 1990s. I was in a music store that had listening stations where you could preview new recordings, and I was intrigued by the name, so I hit play. The ethereal sound of four women singing songs I had never heard before in languages I couldn't understand completely bowled me over. No accompaniment, no artifice. Their Christmas album, On Euless Night, made me realize there was a whole body of Christmas music that had been lost to the ages. Or almost. They made other Christmas albums too, such as A Star in the East, medieval Hungarian Christmas music. How much less commercial could a Christmas album be? And yet by that time, they'd built up a loyal audience of people who were hungry for something different, something deeper than Rudolph. At one point, they had three albums on Billboard's Top 15 Classical Chart. Anonymous 4 stopped performing in 2016, after 30 years and a whole lot of holiday concerts. And that got me wondering, would an Anonymous 4 member still have any interest in Christmas music? I reached out to Susan Hellauer, one of the founding members of the group, and asked her about this. Susan's retired from singing these days, and she teaches music at Queens College. Here's my interview with her. Susan Hellauer, welcome to Sounds Out of Time. Great to be with you. Thank you. I'm thrilled to talk to you because, as I mentioned in our email correspondence before this, the show is about bringing people a little bit of awareness about music that you might characterize as sounds out of time. And your group, Anonymous 4, really was doing that for your entire existence. You were taking music that, at least in my interpretation, that very few, if any, people outside of specialists and real early music aficionados knew and introducing it to much broader audiences. So in some way, this is a dream come true for me. I'm really excited to talk to you. Now, for those of you who don't know about Anonymous 4, one of the things that really put you on the map, at least in my reading of it, is that you brought early Christmas music to to much broader audiences. You went back into the uh, repertoire, if you will, of medieval Renaissance and so-called early music, and you brought forward these carols and other seasonal songs that so few of us knew. And so I wrote to you and I said, well, look, you sang Christmas music for decades. <laughs> and what do you still reach for when you want to listen to something? What still inspires you? And, and you mentioned a song from your 1993 Christmas album on Euless Night, Peppery Virgo. Tell me a little bit about this song, where it comes from, and why it's special to you. Well, this is a, a monophonic song. On Euless Night actually was a combination of chant, plain chant uh, from English sources, all the music's from English sources of the 13th and early 14th century. Um, it was a combination of plain chant, composed polyphony from the 13th through maybe even the early 15th century, as well as a couple of what we called songs. They're monophonic pieces, one melody, but they're not chant. And there's a, a, a rich tradition 
of this um, mon of monophonic song in English, uh, kind of devotional songs, as well as secular songs from the Middle Ages in England in both Middle English and the slightly later, uh, late Middle English, the Chaucerian English. And it's, um, it's so wonderful to sing this. It's like English crossed with German or Swedish, crossed with a teeny tiny drop of French and very more ingratiating to sing, easier in the mouth and you know, on the tongue than modern English. So we sought out these songs in all of our English uh, recordings. So the, the repertoire is mixed on, on Euless Night. And um, this saw, particular song, Peperit Virgo, like many medieval pieces, exists only in its text, only the lyrics survive, but it's meant to be fitted to a known secular song. And um, this in the Middle Ages would have been called a contrafact or a, um, made against, I guess, is, is the literal translation of, of the Latin. But um, this is very common where uh, basically sacred texts were fitted to an existing tune, usually a pop tune or a composed secular love song, very common in all the Western European um, countries in the Middle Ages and, and onward after that as well. So Peperit Virgo exists uh, in a 14th century manuscript, the text written by a Franciscan a monastic who was also the bishop of Ossory in Ireland in the mid 14th century. And what he was trying to do was get his monks to still be able to sing the pop tunes of the day, which they loved. And instead of singing the secular love songs, they uh, were able to sing his sacred lyrics and still have the the fun of singing a popular tune. So Peperit Virgo is one of those. And it's meant to be set to a popular, it's kind of, a, it's a love song. It's a secular song. Those four out of five scholars might disagree about whether it's secular or veiled, veiledly, veiledly sacred. Brid on a brer. It's been recorded many times. It's, frequently performed because it's one of the few songs in English that survive from that century, monophonic songs. And um, so this Peperit Virgo lyric was meant to be sung to that tune to replace it. I, I've got the quote in this Red Book of Ossery where these song, sacred song texts are contained. Bishop Richard Ledred said, to, that they should sing these lyrics, the monks, quote, so that their mouths be not defiled with theatrical foul secular songs. And so that's the uh, origin of Peppered Virgo. It's, um, it, I don't think it was recorded before we recorded it, though it was known, I mean, scholars knew about it, but we set it to the Brit on a Brer tune which it obviously goes to. If you just look at the two lyrics on the page, you can see that they have the same kind of 
repetitions of syllables and all of that. So there is obviously that's what it's meant to be fitted to. Let's listen to a version of Breda on a Brer by Dufay Collective. This melody, I would describe the introductory theme as a, as a minor key melody, and I'm curious how it strikes you. And to my ear, as someone hearing it through 20th, 21st century ears, it doesn't sound like what I think of as a romantic love song in that sense, because it's got a darkness to it. I'm curious, or a melancholy, I'm curious how you would interpret that. Yes, so the the mode of this song is equivalent to our modern minor mode. By the 14th century even, you start to hear more songs uh, in what we would call our major and minor. So uh, this is one of them and it has therefore a kind of, for us now, a kind of timelessness to it because it could be recent, maybe a folk song from England or Ireland, or it could be very old, or it could have been just written by someone. So that's one of the reasons I thought of this song. And one of the things that attracted us to it at first is that it, it seemed to cross time boundaries. It has, it's old, it's medium, it's new, it's, it's itself, but it could speak to modern audiences. Yes, and another thing about the tune this uh, tune only exists in one copy from the 14th century, I believe, or maybe the late 13th, but I think 14th. And it's scratched onto, in very light ink, onto the back of a copy of a papal bull or a papal proclamation, which I, I assume had been brought to the British Isles at some point. That's you know, They were disseminated that way. Someone would have carried it there. And someone on the back of it scratched in some staff lines and some notes and words of this song, but it's hard to read. And it's hard to be sure about exactly how the melody goes or fits with the words. And so whenever you hear a performance of this song, you might hear slightly different interpretations of the melody, especially at cadence points. And so our... And Pepe de Virgo has a very similar scansion, poetic scansion to the original, but it's not exact, exact. And some, uh, some words or syllables, final syllables, especially in Middle English, English from the 14th century, just pre-Chaucerian, it's a little hard to know whether it's silent or pronounced. And so that would make, that would influence your decision to, of how to distribute the notes that are there across these words. So our version probably differs from any number of brid on a brer, which will differ from each other. Did you discover this for the first time as a group or were all of you familiar with this melody and or this 
sacred song? What was the genesis of deciding to record this specific song? So this song um, is mentioned in the notes of a very um, important collection of medieval songs called Medieval English Song <laughs> by Harrison and Dobson. Um, it's probably from the 1970s or 80s. We could look that up. Um, and it's mentioned, this particular text version is mentioned in the notes as being fitted to Breed on a Brer, which of course appears in that collection. And all of us, I'm sure, knew Breed on a Brer because it was performed all the time in any kind of English medieval program would would often, if not almost always, feature this song because it was so important and so rare that you have secular love songs in that version of English, which as I said before, is so fun to sing too, as you could obviously hear from, um, from the version you just played. And Pepere Virgo is in Latin, not in Middle English, and and but it can fit nicely to those words. So that's that I, I look, we're have, we're doing a sacred recording of basically sacred music for Christmas. And so, aha, Pepere Virgo is a nativity text. You could sing it as a Mary text all about the Virgin Mary, but it really is uh, focused on the virgin birth. And so it works perfectly in a nativity context. So I just worked on fitting it to the melody. And as I mentioned, I had to make some adjustments to it. And so we discovered it in our research on sacred nativity-based music for from the English 13th, 14th, early 15th century. So we're not quite 30 years after you all recorded this for On Eulis Night. Why is this still a song that really speaks to you? What's the power of it and what really makes it still come alive for you? I think it's uh, a couple of things. First of all, the fact that it was well known already as among medieval you know, performers and music listeners would have been very familiar. And so it was one of the few pieces on the program with the exception of maybe there is no rose. Some of the, you know, the carols that are, are more familiar in various contexts, but it's one of the few, very few medieval pieces that would, would maybe be recognized. And so that was very important, but that also brought with it a certain danger because as we were just fooling around with it and I was, I was, I worked, was working on the transcription as I was singing it and transcribing it, into my mind popped a counter melody, which is not authentic to anything medieval. It doesn't sound not medieval or like anti-medieval, <laughs> but it was just something that popped into my head. And, and so I noted it down so I'd remember it. And uh, very sheepishly, <laughs> brought it to the rehearsal, <laughs> this impure creation <laughs> that I had come up with. And 
we, you know, worked on it, tried various arrangements out and decided, yes, let's keep it. We love it. But it always caused me a free zone of fear <laughs> and scholarly angst that medieval purists would hear it and say, there they go. They're, they're precursors to the medieval babes or something, you know, they're, they're, they're distorting the repertoire. And it was the first real thing that we ever did to a piece of music. And so, you know, I kind of, you know, looking at the reviews with one eye open only <laughs> to see if somebody said, well, you know, but they got this piece, <laughs> they do this thing. And, and so that was kind of a slightly daring gesture. And, you know, it, even over the years, it's, it's held up as a song that simply just reaches across the centuries. It's one of the, it's not that the other pieces don't or can't, but it has this, as you were mentioning, this kind of timeless quality. It's, it's in a minor key. Uh, it's singing about something happy, but we now, not then, but now have come to associate minor keys with things that are melancholy or um, a little bit sad or a little bit distant. The kind of sad, minor is sad. If you've ever taught music appreciation, which I have, you teach that minor sounds sad even while internally you're going, no, it doesn't. <laughs> Just listen to this plonk, this medieval planctus that's in what we would consider a major key. Just listen to this happy song about Christmas that's in what we would consider a minor key. So those are late associations, but there it is. The association is there. You can't unhear all of Beethoven, Brahms, and Louis Armstrong. You know, it's, it's all there for us with all the implications it brings. So this one seemed to just reach across time. And, but I was a little shy also of presenting it because it's my solo. <laughs> what am I, what are you doing? And because I sang bass in anonymous for the lowest voice all the time, I would, you know, rarely be featured on a song because I would be on the, one of the lower lines, but this is a solo basically with, with drones and this beautiful counter melody. Oh, I shouldn't say that I wrote it, but it works well. <laughs> and, and Ruth sings it so beautifully. Really she does. And she's going out of her range, a high soprano dipping down into her lower range and Johanna also. So it's also a song where we're all singing different things than we normally sing. And yet it works. It's one of those, there's a few of those where we're all in the wrong <laughs> range, in the wrong place, and yet the result is fine. And uh, so it, it has that, that like, the, it was that first toe in the water of adding ourselves a little something that's not supposed to be there. And I mean, if there were any reviewers who said, how dare they, I never saw it, I never heard it. Maybe people are just being nice. Maybe they liked it. So they just kept, they shut up. <laughs> but it, it's got, and it has really warm memories for that reason. Well, let's listen to an excerpt of that section where you broke with the traditional melody here.
as I said earlier, you are a professional holiday music person. You spent decades singing music that is really focused around the holidays. I can't imagine how many Christmas concerts you performed over the decades. Do you still listen to holiday music recreationally, so to speak? Uh, Yes, but I listen to very odd things. Such as? I have a couple of recordings of zither music, which and I was brought up in a German-speaking home in the Bronx, <laughs> you know. So um, anything like that with, with zithers or that has that German nostalgia or maybe choirs, I, I tend to listen to that. I, li- I like Phil Spector's Christmas album of the, you know, rock and roll Christmas, that early stuff. Um, I love to listen to any kind of brass music because my training is a trumpet player. My, my college degree is in trumpet. So uh, brass music, especially early brass, really, it just does it for me. I'll, I will sometimes put on the Messiah. I'll never put on Anonymous 4 <laughs> because I hear, <laughs> I hear everything. I hear the recording session. I hear where, you know, that was flat, <laughs> you know, and I hear that, oh, that was, was that the best take? You know, things that other people might not hear. I'm sure I'm not at all unique among musicians who've made recordings. People don't listen to their own music. You know, it's just, just doesn't. So they're there in a place of honor in my house on the shelf. But unless I'm um, like doing a workshop on Zoom and I can find a piece that we sang in an actual Western music key, because vocal groups just sing in whatever key is comfortable. And if you're going to teach a recorder workshop, you probably don't want it in, you know, G sharp minor. <laughs> you're not going to get hired again. So I'll sometimes listen to things for use in a workshop or a masterclass, but entertainment wise, no, but, but there's so, you know, we did four Christmas, pro- we developed four Christmas programs. The first program we developed was a Christmas program for the, the same obvious reasons that that's when people will come out to hear early music, choral music. So when we, when we gathered in August of 86 and we liked what we were doing, we said, let's do a Christmas concert. And it was the legends of St. Nicholas. So that had changed many times over the years. We kept adapting our programs, but I am really happy that other people love them and want to listen to them. But I, it's hard, it's still, even at all these years remove, it's still hard not to hear it with a critical ear. Of course. So Phil Spector it is. I love it. <laughs> I'm dating myself, obviously, but it's so, it's got the energy of a certain era with the, um, the energy of early rock and roll and uh, that, that whole, you know, loosey goosey thing. I just, I, and, but very tight. I mean, that wall of sound that he produced was extremely impressive and more impressive. You can tell I teach music history (laughs) and more impressive when you think it was mainly going to be heard over a transistor radio. That's right. Well, Susan Hellauer, I can't thank you enough for speaking with me today on Sounds Out of Time. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure. Thanks for asking. If you like Sounds Out of Time, please sign up at soundsoutoftime.substack.com 
or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is a word-of-mouth project, so please spread the word. Special thanks to my digital guru, Matt White. And remember, if your ear is thirsty for something new, try something old. Until next time, this has been Matt Kohut, bringing you sounds out of time.